0: This is All People Are Crazy, a reverent discussion on how to cope with being a perfectly normal crazy person. These conversations are to nudge your curiosity about mental health, fill in any gaps in your knowledge, and encourage you to make the difficult deal of taking your own advice. This podcast series includes adult concepts, explicit language, discussions of mental health, mental illness, suicide, trauma, violence, drugs, and sex, but generally not all at the same time. Please be gentle with yourself and remember to seek support if you need it, starting with family and friends, your general practitioner, and in Australia, Lifeline in 13, 11, 14.
1: Welcome to All People Are Crazy. I'm Lisa Downs, and I'm joined by Australian psychologist and all-round great guy Tom Lothian. Hello, Tom.
0: <laughs> Morning, Lisa. Morning to a special sweat lodge session. It is all, so great to be in person. All people are crazy. <laughs> this is amazing. I know it's glorious. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so last week we covered ground on mindfulness, how simple but valuable it can be, and how you can use it to reflect on where you are in life, so you can figure out a pathway forward and through whatever life is throwing at you. Mm.
0: And how many people hate it as a process <laughs> which is understandable but like almost everything else we talk about it's a bad deal and it's the best deal going
1: <laughs> i hate that you don't just have magic polyjuice for no stuff.
0: Oh, if only man if only
1: <laughs> so now before we launch into this week just a reminder that tom does not dispense personal medical advice all his advice is general in nature and you should seek professional support for your own individual circumstances and in australia start with your gp
0: excellent
1: so Today, our topic is, all people are monsters. Yeah. Tom, are (laughs) all people monsters? Am I a monster? Well, I mean, you've seen me at my worst.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And to be fair, even at your worst, you're pretty great. (laughs) <laughs> but I'm gonna I, I'm a hard yes on this as a hard thing. yes, hard all people yes. are monsters. Hard yes, all Everyone. people are monsters. All people can be the
1: Pope thoroughly. Everyone.
0: Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> like the the yeah, okay. yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a bad example.
1: History is that. Yeah, if
0: you're like yeah, if you're looking for some sexy, salacious, murdery history, <laughs> then uh, the history of the popes is amazing. And uh shout out to the Borgias, uh, which is like one of these probably largely historically inaccurate TV shows. But watch Jeremy Irons just <laughs> like oh, to be blunt. <laughs> Fuck his way through the Middle Ages as the Pope, uh, yeah, which is, uh, is is a great giggle. Uh, but Amazing. look, so Santa Claus, sh- sure, let's. I mean, we would never say that Santa Claus is you know anything less than perfection as a, um, I mean, ethereal being. Is he even human? Yeah, let's uh, let's. I'm going to take that one as too hot to handle. Okay, great, but cool. re- we're drawing it to like normal people, okay. right? Hum- like everyone else, humans on this planes of existence. Absolutely. And a a shout out for our our first kind of episode on like all people are crazy and what is therapy. Like I drew a lot of kind of comparisons to modern day humans as cavemen. Right. So as a reminder, uh, modern day humans are cavemen uh, in the kind of biological sense. Like all our best uh, sciencey evidence shows that we have not fundamentally changed as far as animals are concerned. So humans are animals too. Uh, And let's keep in mind cavemen geared up to do some pretty bad stuff when required so I would suggest that my entire profession exists because we are cavemen living in the 21st century and our emotional systems are not well geared up for our challenges and indeed what we are geared up for is the plains of Savannah, the Savannah of Africa, excuse me, uh, 200,000 odd years ago um, and that means yeah, like hoeing into other cavemen at times or uh, like beating up your old saber-toothed tiger or your woolly mammoth when needs be and so I think those impulses sit within all all of us. Uh, and I actually think we see evidence for that everywhere, in every culture, at every time in history. Um, yeah, so I think any given person is capable of truly monstrous acts with a disturbingly small amount of uh, psychological pressure um, or environmental pressure. And I think knowing that means that we can manage it. But I think it's uncomfortable to know that. And it's uncomfortable to acknowledge that there's like darkness inside us all Uh, and so there's a strong temptation to pretend that it doesn't exist which ironically leaves us more vulnerable to doing exactly the things that we disapprove of in the first instance yeah 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 okay this is deep oh yeah well and this one's gonna you know there's gonna be some like serious edges to this i mean there'll be some funny bits no doubt along the way as well but normal people for my money are capable of murder on any given tuesday afternoon under the right circumstances.
1: Yeah, right. So, unpack this a bit more for me. So, in the day-to-day life, what does this mean for me that I am essentially a monster or have (laughs) elements of a monster? Absolutely. What what are we talking about here?
0: I mean, I think it's one of my kind of like favourite mantras from a, a previous supervisor of mine, which is that a problem is not a problem unless it's a problem. And so, I think letting yourself have the full gamut of weird and wonderful thoughts that a normal person will have is an important part of letting yourself have a brain and not going problematically crazy with it. It's yeah. the kind of deep irony of this whole like string of conversations that you and I are having, Lisa, and indeed all of my work, is that when we let ourselves have our madness, when we leave enough space for that, we can deal with it. Whereas if we try to reject parts of that experience, whether it's our anxiety or our aggression or our violence or our anything else, now we're not leaving enough space for it. Now we're not managing it. And indeed, we'll try to pretend that it's not happening to a pretty deep degree at different points along the way. So to come back to your specific question, which is what that I do as a completely normal person, let yourself have those impulses. So, for instance, most of us...
1: Impulses or thoughts?
0: I mean, I would call those the same things. Okay. So I think that... You know, if I'm going to draw a distinction between thoughts and impulses, I would say an impulse is more a feelings-y type experience, but that can come dressed up as a thought. Okay. Whereas a thought more like, what am I having for dinner? How can I plan this out next?
1: Right. Because yeah. I was thinking impulses were more like things you would do.
0: I mean, I would call that behaviour. Right. Which okay. is an important distinction, right? Yeah, and okay. let's keep in mind that... So therapy is a non-judgmental space. And I say that because this is starting to touch on moral questions. And because therapy is non-judgmental, I am not a moral expert, right? Like that is not what my training is. And indeed, when I'm doing therapy stuff, it's explicitly not about my morality, right? My morality starts and finishes with the boundaries of confidentiality, basically, right? It's my professional code of ethics is what I bring into the room. Uh, And that's to leave space for the client's morality. Now, it becomes a little bit important to know some stuff about the kind of fundamentals of philosophy as a therapist for these questions, right? So is it wrong to have thoughts about murdering people? Is it wrong to feel violent impulses towards another person, Now, ultimately, every client has to answer that question because it's the client's code of morality uh, that is the kind of important one here. Uh, What I would say to that is the vast majorities of religions and the vast majorities of philosophies would say that we should judge right and wrong by our actions, not by our thoughts, by our feelings. Those essentially represent temptation. And whether you're doing the right or wrong thing, you want to make that call on the basis of... What you do with it. So think about. It. I'll, I'll use the kind of Catholic system, right? We have a little shout out to the Pope. Um, not that he needs it. Uh, <laughs> but in that, in that system, right? Because they have a lovely simple language attached to it. You know, temptation is all around us, right? Whether it's in the outside world or within our inside world, sin is what we do with it. Now, uh. big asterisks on that. There are. I would say, minority versions of even Catholicism. But you'll find it in all the religions and indeed in all the philosophies, which will convince you that certain types of thoughts are inherently wrong. Now, I think that's interesting in terms of whether that's to the benefit of the religious institution or to the benefit of whatever philosophical institution you happen to be attending, because I think it's entirely unfeasible to control your thoughts.
1: Yeah. I'm feeling a vibe <laughs> that's a bit slashing over with our mindfulness chat of like being aware of your thoughts. Is that yeah. Oh, look sure. at this. <laughs> very good.
0: I mean, I wasn't going to explicitly integrate those two, but that is great. Absolutely. Yeah, right.
1: What? Yeah. So what, we're trying to be aware of these things, but it's not that big a deal. You know, like what are you, or we can reflect on Problem's what that Problem's not
0: be a saying. problem unless it's a problem, right. right? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, for instance, there'd be very few people people out there living in, well, Australia, let's use Australia as an example, who, while waiting for a bus or a train, haven't visualised themselves Pushing somebody in front of the incoming bus or train. Okay, the face you just gave me says you have no, not had this experience. Think, <laughs> that is well, really, it was. Really, right? It was for a long time, and I know really? I'm not alone with this experience. because no, sure there's you're like not. Plenty of not. people out there have done that. And I to mean, be I really, have been c-
1: using trucks with a certain individual, <laughs> but that's fine. Like I had access to trucks back
0: in the day, so okay, I'm with you now. Well, and equally, <laughs> to be clear, I have not murdered any people. Right, <laughs> like, me neither. That is for my for my baseline. Like We're going to make going to make moral judgments about. <laughs> where I'm at, you know, your system of morality or mine, my current murder rate is zero. Uh, and fingers crossed it stays there for the indefinite future. Great job. But Absolutely, yeah. right, for the longest time. Uh, I tell you, particularly when I was standing at a train station, there was something about train stations and the fact that the train is coming and it can't, like, move. There's, like, there's a, a kind of trappedness of that experience. And I would visualize myself, not as a deliberate thing, this would be uh, an impulse, right, yeah. kind of like a thought, but I would say it's an emotion dressed up as a thought, right? So I think there's a distinction to be drawn uh, between the thoughts we kind of consciously create Right. Like our deliberate thoughts, like, yeah. uh, you know, you and I have had conversations about the setup of microphones and the placement of various laptops for sound quality, all of that conscious thinking. Right. right? That's our like best, often boring conscious selves. Uh, and that's a very limited resource. Right. There's not a lot of conscious thinking available on any given day, uh, whereas our emotional brains are capable of doing huge quantities of work, huge, huge quantities of work, uh, but they're highly variable. Right. The good news about rational thinking is that one plus one always equals two, but it's very slow. And the bad new- the good news about emotional thinking is it will do huge quantities of work really, really quickly, but one plus one can equal banana mm. because it is a highly random like system yeah. right it runs on a different physics essentially to the way the rational world works and a lot of my kind of therapeutic work is about helping folks understand that while their feelings are understandable they are by definition irrational it's the not rational system. So looping it all back okay. to murdering strangers at uh, train stations. Yeah. Um, yeah, this used to pop up um, early in my career when I was doing OCD work in particular. So in OCD, folks get what's called a distressing intrusive thought. Uh, and it will be, uh, by definition, uh, an immoral act by the client's definition, right? Not by society's definition, by the client's definition. OCD,
1: obsessive compulsive oh, disorder. very good. Thank yeah, you for right breaking on. down
0: my acronyms. Yep. Um, and the treatment for OCD involves letting those thoughts happen and seeing that you're not following through on them. Now, very rarely have I had to kind of drop into a philosophical conversation with a client as to what is right and what is wrong. 99.9% of the time, I get to leave that to the client be like oh it's whatever you want it to be right that's the purpose of the non-judgmental space for therapy you get to come with whatever religious beliefs you have whatever moral beliefs you have about the world in general um and then we'll work with that because that's an important part of who you are as a person right that's the authentic you um and so whether it's violent impulses about murdering folks at train stations or hitting them with a truck or doing whatever else i'm going to suggest that that represents temptation and then what you do with it falls into the kind of moral space. Uh, and on the odd occasion where I've had clients who are invested in a, in a philosophy or a religion that speaks to them about the sin of thought, for instance, uh, then we end up in a conversation about whether that's working out for them. Not that they need to change religion or change philosophy, because inevitably, again, Catholicism is a good example. There's enormous variety within Catholicism. And people will move within different kind of traditions within Catholicism as one example, but you could say the same thing about Judaism or Hindu or Islam or anything really. Um, Yeah. And so you get to pick. You get to pick as an informed person, well, does this specific reading of this system of belief work for me? Or am I better off hearing the way my mind works, understanding that if I'm accepting of monstrous impulses, uh, accepting of odd uh, emotions and odd thoughts, which gives me the space to manage them, that works better. So weirdly enough, sometimes by lowering our expectations of the way our brains work, we actually have more space to manage them. And the opposite is also true. If we insist on being perfect beings, perfect celestial beings who are only clean and straightforward and natural or whatever... The, the deal is inside your own head, then I think it's very easy to get worked up about it. Right? These are the folks, I think, who describe themselves as fine. A lot, I'm fine, like, fine, 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 fine. I'm so fine. I'm just fine all the time. There's like a specific... Cadence and anxiety that sits behind it. And uh, fun fact, fine is actually an acronym uh, in my trade. Yeah. Is it? Fucked up, insecure, neurotic, and, and extremely stressed <laughs> is what we think like, of. When we hear fine, I'm like
1: kick that one. Do you now? <laughs> Are you fine?
0: Are you really? Is that what's going on for you? Because yeah, a person who's actually fine doesn't need to say it twelve times. Do you and Just like <laughs> drop that in the once, and it, it will be a something there. comfortable <laughs> statement. Yeah, you're not alone with this experience. Like, so. <laughs>
1: So when you're psychologisting people yes. and they come to you and they say, Okay, so they're acknowledging that they have some monster thoughts, mm-hmm. let's call them monster thoughts, yeah. um, that are you know, they're worried about or they're stressing about mm-hmm. how do they then work through or how do you work through with them, like reflecting on what's causing that, or do you go through and figure, what do mm-hmm. you need? What do you what do we mm-hmm. do then?
0: Oh, that's lovely. So that's a like a very total package. To look at that stuff, because I think part of it is allowing yourself – to I mean, this is the the kind of the title of the show, right? It's letting yourself be crazy, and I'm going to package monstrosity in with part of the craziness. So, if we're accepting that we are cavemen, right, we're largely hairless, bipedal apes, then we expect a fair bit of weird stuff in there. But those deeper questions of why am I having this specific impulse at this specific time, yeah, that's great. And sometimes you can hit upon an answer. Sometimes you can't. Yeah. Um, and that's okay as well, right? It can, yeah. Even if it's a question of like, I mean, last week, right? Last week, I was like super tired, like fatiguedly tired. Mm. And I had a fair sense of what it is. A hint, I probably work too hard and don't sleep enough. Um, <laughs> but also maybe not because I can't know with certainty. And then that's an important part of it, right, is making your best guess. Letting the answer be uncertain because there's no universal court of correct thoughts, right? And there are no psychics, which means that no one else can get in there and tell you what's really going on for you, right? The best that we can offer is a me-shaped person uh, to sit there and listen while you, the client, solve your own problems and figure out whether that's going on. Uh, but you kind of made that joke before, right, about uh, about perhaps hitting people with trucks or a specific individual, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna make no comment. Yeah. You don't want to me in any family catch-ups in the future. I take the fifth, <laughs> Your Honor. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so that all makes sense. Right. So if here the, the kind of fun irony of it, if we take your murderous rage, um, as a sign that you might be angry with a specific individual, and indeed these impulses tend to play out for you with one person more than another, yet yeah, then there's a great wisdom in that. You're like, oh, I'm angry with whatever. Let's just call them Uncle Bob, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone's got a mad Uncle Bob of some description, even if they're not an uncle, and even if they're not called Bob. Um, But hello,
1: Uncle Bob, (laughs) it's not you. No, just he pulled these out of the hat. I love you, actual (laughs) Uncle Bob. That's
0: fantastic. Right, so let's call (laughs) him. Let's call yeah. That's it. uh, Your actual, your delightful Uncle Bob is a great (laughs) placeholder for whoever it actually is. Right? (laughs) Yeah. So then that. Weirdly enough, right, that kind of murderous impulse can be a really useful wisdom. And as long as you don't then use that impulse to motivate you to actually murder poor Uncle Bob, uh, then you're golden, right? Like, okay, this is interesting. Maybe this is a relationship I need to work on. Maybe i got a boundary issue here. Maybe... So there's some jerky behaviour going on from the other side of things that I've been kind of sweeping under the carpet or pretending isn't happening, uh, which is fun things that we do as well, right? Yeah. Humans are really good at pretending stuff doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, weirdly enough, right, these thoughts, as strange as they are, can be deeply helpful in mm-hmm. the right context. Yes, we can make sense of them, even though they're not rational, right? It doesn't come from the logical system. It comes from the emotional system. But that doesn't mean they're not understandable. So, yeah, Yeah. we can come to understand them. And, again, as long as we hold them gently and we take good care of ourselves, then the chance of murder is actually very low, which is the good news.
1: I did like your point before that, you know, because, like, I'm here and my analytical brain just wants to, like, (laughs) use the thoughts to find the solution. But I think what stood out to me is, you know, you're saying that the actual the emotional side of things is that you can actually get 1 plus 1 equals banana. Yeah. And just because I'm having some feelings about whatever – they might not necessarily be directly related or I might not necessarily be able to unpack a one plus one equals two answer to that necessarily.
0: Yeah. Think of your emotional brain as feeding you information in code, right? It comes to you in this coded form, which is, Weird thoughts or strong bodily sensations, right? Whether it's tingling fingers or feelings in your tummy or a tightening in your chest or warmth in your legs, wherever it's going to be, right? And all bodies are a bit different, so it plays out differently for each person. Uh, and I think when we bring our rational mind and our emotional mind together... Yeah, we can often make sense of what's going on, but understanding that these are essentially two different languages that play out within any given person. Uh, for further reading, and I'll whack this in the resources uh, for, for this session, uh, Blink by Malcolm Gladwell, I think is a really lovely summary of exactly this phenomenon uh, with all its greatest strengths and its greatest weaknesses. Um, and Malcolm is a really wonderful writer on psychology because apart from anything else, he's not a psychologist. He's a journalist uh, and a really great writer. Um, yeah. And his book is, I think, a much shorter, snappier version of the very long, serious book by Daniel Kahneman uh, called Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, yeah, love it. which is great. It's an amazing piece of work. And Kahneman won a, a Nobel Prize um, essentially for that work and its implication for economics. Uh, but yeah, if you want something a bit snappier and that doesn't take three times as long to read, uh, I'd steer to Malcolm Gladwell in the the first instance. But I'll put links to both books um, in the in the show notes.
1: Excellent. Hmm. All right, is now a good time for you to explain to me about Milgram? Yes. Okay, great.
0: Yeah, yeah. So St- Stanley Milgram... Uh, first of all, you've got to keep in mind the, the context for Milgram's work. So, Milgram was a psychologist and researcher. Uh, well, he was researching psychology stuff, I should say. Uh, he was starting to form questions on research coming out of the Second World War, which was not a good time for anyone who hasn't caught quite up. Quite dire. Yeah, quite dire. Really, really awful things happened. Uh, you know, German people who, you know, as best as I can tell, are delightful and not many meaningfully different from me, mm. uh, attempted to remove the entirety of Judaism from the face of the world, mm. uh, which is not good as an understatement. Just as a vibe. Yeah, just yeah. as a vibe. That's We're against that as a thing. You know, even in a non-judgmental space, <laughs> genocide, we're a no. Yeah. yeah. It's hard no. Yeah. And so Milgram was trying to understand how is it that Germany, arguably the most liberal European country through the first half of the 20th century, how was it that Germany came to be the country where such, like, group and individual monstrosities were taking place? Mm. So he devised an experiment where he called in completely normal people, right? So these are just normal folks recruited out of newspapers and university campuses and whatnot uh, to come into this experiment ostensibly about learning. And Milgram had this setup where you as the participant would turn up uh, and there would be another participant already waiting in the waiting room mm-hmm. uh, and then you would uh, you would draw lots and you would be randomly allocated always to the role of the teacher because it turned out the other participant was actually an actor right but we didn't know okay. that at the time right at the at the time you turn up and you see another person who is volunteering their time to help a scientist understand learning right mm-hmm. so it's like an uncontroversially good thing to do yep. uh, and then in Milgram's experiment uh you're it's explained to you that you're to read a list of words uh, to the student you're the teacher uh and uh when the student repeats them fine you let them know that they are the winner uh, and nothing happens and when they get a word wrong you're to depress a switch on a panel in front of you and the learner will be administered an electric shock And each time, with each increasing word that they get wrong, the intensity of the shocks will increase. And the panel in front of you starts at 15 volts, and it moves up in 15-volt increments to 450 volts. And then there's three blank switches, and then a final switch, which says, XXX, warning, danger.
1: Right. Yes.
0: Uh, And so, the you know, the fake experiment progresses because, of course, it's not really about learning at all. Uh, and as we progress... The, it's fine for the first little while. And then the actor starts complaining, right? The student. Are
1: who, they actually getting real electric shocks? No. Okay, great.
0: No actors were he's murdered in the nervous. conduction okay. of this Carry research. On. Carry on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the student is uh, starting to complain. They're mm-hmm. saying that they don't want to participate. Uh, they're complaining of excessive pain. Uh, and as we progress along, the actor starts demanding to be released from the experiment uh, and in the uh, as we're starting to get towards the end, the actor is complaining about having a heart condition and then for the last oh, I think it's like 10 or 15 switches, the actor is silent. Ooh. Having thumped on the wall and done this, that and the other. Right? The, the, the experiment came in several different forms. There were mm-hmm. lots of variables to kind of see what was really making the difference here. Uh, but the implication is that you have murdered someone with a heart condition. So, that was the, like, the full breadth of the experiment. And when Milgram first set up this experiment, it was his hypothesis, his guess, that 2% of teachers, right, of normal people, 2% of teachers uh, would murder the student. Because that was the, like... The, the rate of uh, psychopathy that we thought. So okay. what percentage of the, the population do we think are problematic psychopaths um, in any given year? We think it's about 2%. So Milgram's hypothesis was 2% of people will uh, will murder an innocent stranger. Incidentally, there's a research assistant in the room as well. Uh, and because most folks, when the student says, I don't want to do this anymore, will say, well, we should finish. And then the researcher would say, you must continue.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. I was wondering what.
0: Yeah, so there's a reinforcement. There's a a figure of authority reinforcing the message to continue. Right. But keeping in mind, you're in a university psychology clinic.
1: They could still say no.
0: They could absolutely say no. It wasn't you... You know, oh, I'm going to murder your family if yeah, uh, if you can't continue. Yeah, it's not not that situation. Um, There was some tweaks around the role of the, the research assistant. So sometimes they were wearing casual clothes. Sometimes they're wearing a lab coat. Sometimes they're carrying a clipboard. Sometimes you can see the student. Sometimes you can't see the student. They're in like a little connected room and they're banging on the wall instead of being in front of you. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the student would have... Uh, conversation with the teacher beforehand to create some level of rapport, sometimes not. Mm. Uh, now in the scenario, Lisa, where you have a lab researcher in a lab coat carrying a clipboard and there's been no rapport built, between the uh between the student and the teacher did you want to take a guess at what percentage of oh, the population no. if
1: we're starting at his hypothesis of two percent <laughs> yeah. oh god ten percent
0: yeah it's 85
1: holy moly <laughs> yeah,
0: I know. really yeah. all
1: you need is a clipboard and a jacket pretty and to not really have personally connected with someone March exactly wow that's pretty dire
0: yeah well yes and no now uh, an important science nerd note, Milgram's findings are highly controversial within okay. the general population – within the science, sorry, population these days. Mm-hmm. So, Milgram's like specific findings and exactly the mechanisms and whatnot are very contested. I think they're pretty spot on, to be honest. And I think that having that level of authority and pressure – Be that effective as far as murder being effective is concerned, explains a great deal of what we see in the world. I think that explains an enormous amount. Because keeping in mind, if we kind of roll back to the underlying question, why Germany, in Germany, actual guns being held to actual heads? Mm -hmm. And that isn't to excuse, you know, the awful crimes that occurred. What I think it does is actually spread the responsibility further. Than the specific individuals who pulled triggers yeah. or flicked switches, I think it spreads the responsibility also to the folks sitting behind desks who came up with policy or designed systems or who economically depleted Germany at the end of the First World War. Right, I think that while we can't necessarily uh, legally hold to account. Uh, you know, different institutions and different individuals for that that situation, the environment in which Germany found itself, that there was a lot more going on than just bad apples, which is the convenient conversation. Yeah. I mean, for my money, if you've got bad apples, you have a barrel problem apart from yeah. anything else. Yeah. I think if you don't have a barrel problem, then when you have bad apples, they don't get away with very much at all. And also that even if you are Uh, you know, potentially a bad apple, uh, which, you know, it would seem at least 85% of us are on any given day, um, that you won't go down that path. Because, of course, there was very encouraging stuff that came out of Milgram as well. right? Oh, absolutely. Okay. (laughs) I know it seems like all bad news. (laughs) Hit me with the good stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the good news is that if we build rapport, if we build understanding, if we build connection, that is enormously protective. And also, weirdly enough, if we know this is a phenomenon, if we're placed on guard, that we are capable of doing terrible things, right, of mindlessly drifting forward instead of understanding the power of authority uh, and the power of social manipulation, then we can make a choice, right? We can feel that impulse, the non-monstrous impulse, not of murder, but of alignment and of being part of the tribe, and we can understand that if those impulses don't align with our own morality— Then we should do something about it.
1: So now you're moving over into my little (laughs) pattern of campaigns, because what you've actually unpacked there is like a core foundation of campaign strategy where you seek to try and connect. (laughs) Like a campaign topic or people, real people with the change, the social change that you're trying to achieve.
0: I'm not sure we've actually disclosed this, that Lisa's like underlies. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) That's like Lisa's like where professional history is in politics of different forms.
1: But so interesting that that's Mm. like the foundation of this because, you know, without knowing any of that history, I know how I run campaigns, but I don't know. I never knew about Milgram, right? Yeah. So super interesting. Yeah. All right. So where has this type of thing happened elsewhere? Have we, what else have we got on this type of thing? Well,
0: so there was a, uh, following Milgram, there was another experiment run by Philip Zimbardo, who was the uh, professor of psychology at Stanford University in the States. Um, And he wanted to take a slightly different approach to a very similar question, which was if we take completely normal people and we create a prison environment, we randomly allocate folks to prisoner and to guard, um, what's going to happen. So he ran a a kind of different flavour of study apart from anything else. It was very kind of naturalistic and observational. Like, let's just create environments, see what happens. Kind of Mm -hmm. David Attenborough, this stuff, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Phil created a pretend prison in the basement of the psychology department at Stanford. uh, And he got in, I think it's like, it was sixteen or twenty people? I think. Now, importantly, he filtered. Out, he had a whole lot of applicants. Um, he gave them all a heap of uh, what are called psychometrics, like personality questionnaires, and he filtered out anyone with extreme scores. Right? He was going after explicitly going after the quote-unquote most normal people that he could find. Okay. Yeah. Randomly allocated to prisoner and to guard, uh, and then he let it play out. Right. So they had an you know, induction situation. They turned up to the, the prisoners' houses with actual police cars, right? Like the San Francisco police got involved and this little bit of theater where, like, they actually arrested folks. Um, well, I mean, they didn't actually arrest them. No one ended up with a criminal record. Um, and uh, they, they had this lovely kind of bit of theater to start with. And there's a kind of element of, of hilarity in the early stages. And then the experiment was meant to run for two weeks. And it was called off after, I think, eight days because they were moving fairly rapidly towards torture. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It got really dark really quickly. Um, and now, again, importantly, Zimbardo's kind of publications on this, because he didn't, I don't think he published any actual science from the explicit... Experiment that he was running, or the, the okay. observational situation that he was running, because again, there were a lot of problems with his with his methodology. Mm-hmm. Um, he ended up writing a big fat book called The Lucifer Effect, oh. um, half of which is on the Stanford Prison Experiment, and the other half of which was on the Abu Ghraib uh, war crimes trials, which was the um, the second Iraq War um, in the early two thousands when uh, the Americans had, uh, following September eleven had uh, had stormed into Iraq. Um, and, you know, as part of that experience, set up prisons, one of which was Abu Ghraib prison, where a whole lot of really heinous crimes occurred perpetu- uh, perpetuated, no, uh, perpetrated by American soldiers against Iraqi prisoners. Uh, and the American military were running a bad apples defense, um, of their own kind of situation. And Zimbardo put his head up at that stage and said, well, actually, I created this by accident in the sixties. Um, so there's probably a bit more going on here. Uh, and if you did this, like, negligently, that is bad. But also, you may have done this deliberately because I reckon some of you have read my books before now. Mm. Yeah, because Zimbardo had been, like, talking the talk for a long time, um, you know, between the 60s and the early 2000s about this as a kind of phenomenon and it as an impact. Mm. Um, yeah, so we learnt a couple of things from Milgram and Zimbardo. Firstly, that normal people can go spectacularly mad in very dangerous ways really quite quickly. And equally, uh, that we needed to tighten up the ethics around psychology research, uh, and we did. Right, we did. Mm, like, uh, t- okay. as yeah. much as uh, you know, the the kind of psychology PhDs out there at the moment will be complaining about the pain of uh, of ethics applications. Uh, the reasons we have ethics boards and all the like hoops that we make psychology researchers jump through these days is for these reasons. That it turns out as a fun, like, kind of piece of meta evil, if you will. <laughs> psychologists investigating evil can of course do evil themselves Mm. because while Milgram didn't kill any actors he absolutely traumatized a whole lot of research participants Oh yeah yeah goodness I didn't think
1: about
0: well yeah because killing someone is also a traumatic event and, yeah, you know, like like being the victim of attempted murder is traumatizing for mm-hmm. the vast majority of folks as well, of course. Uh, but the act of pulling the trigger. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you think that you're a good person who's turned up to a psychology lab on a Tuesday afternoon mm-hmm. uh, to help out someone understand how learning works a bit better. And then you murder an innocent stranger. Yeah. Your sense of self is probably going to be a bit shaken about that. Uh, and a lot of these folks ended up, unfortunately, with, like, bona fide PTSD. Uh, and that, as it turns out, is a cost that's too high to pay these days. Mm. Uh, so we would never allow, like, the Milgram study to be replicated. Folks have done it in different ways in different spaces. Um, and if you want a modern example of this, uh, Darren Brown, the uh, the British, uh, I'll describe him as an illusionist and oh, yeah. comedian. Uh, so D-E-R-R-E-N, Brown, um, has a Netflix special called the push, uh, where he does it in a slightly different way, but it's pretty solid as far as the methodology is concerned. I mean, maybe it's all showmanship or whatever else, um, but you know, the rest of Darren's career is, is based on claiming that he's doing that. What you'll see, what you see, is what ha- occurred essentially. Um, yeah, and so it's his attempt to get, um, yeah, to get innocent strangers or innocent normal people uh, to, to murder an actor who doesn't actually die. As a, as a part of the experience. That's the good news. So here, if you want to cover off on Milgram and Zimbardo, just watch Darren Brown for one hour. Uh, that'll that'll kind of cover.
1: Highlights
0: real. Highlights <laughs> real. Pretty much. Pretty much. I mean, you could go and read like the Lucifer Effect is like, I think, a 12-hour listen on Audible, something like that, 12, 14 hours.
1: Shout out to Audible if you want to sponsor us. Yeah, yeah that'd be fine, really, really
0: handy. I know yeah, my account's me. pretty full anyway, so I've listened to most of your books at this yeah. stage, but a few more wouldn't big hurt. Big fans,
1: big fans. Yeah.
0: So, the point of all of this, right? Okay. The point of these big long stories, yes, is to point out that psychologists can be bad people too, uh, but also that if we're accepting of this underlying monstrous impulse, this monstrous potential within ourselves, that gives us the space to manage it. I think it's when we're rejecting of that, no, that couldn't possibly be me. I could never do something like that. That's an abhorrent thought. I just don't want to have it. I mean, to come back to that kind of mindfulness episode, and indeed, even the first one on on anxiety stuff, you know, when we push that stuff away, it comes up again and again. Apart from anything else, you're creating a feedback loop between your rational and your emotional self, right? Because when you push something away, you attach a little bit of anxiety to it. And one of the things the anxiety system does is it draws your attention to things. So what you're saying is this thought is a threat. And so what your emotional brain does is like, great, got it. That thought's a threat. Let me scan your brain for that thought. And the act of scanning your brain for that thought creates the thought, which pops Mm. up again. And now we're in a feedback loop. And so ironically, if you don't want to feel monstrous, you need to take care of yourself and you need to let yourself feel monstrous. That's the like minimum chips version of having monstrous impulses. Zero monstrosity, not an option available, I'm going to suggest. Yeah,
1: right. Mm. Okay, so we have monstrous elements to all of us. So how do we manage our monster?
0: I think by taking really good care of yourself, right? So it's still the fundamentals. You've got to, like, eat right and exercise and get enough sleep is an important part of it. I mean, think about, take a less kind of controversial example of, like, relationship conflict is mm. normal for all people at different points. Uh, and if we think about how well- Or diplomatically, let's say, how diplomatically do you put your argument in any given conversation? That will change a lot depending on how well you've slept. But if you've had a good night's sleep and your partner or your child or your colleague or your boss is being a tanty jerk, with a good night's sleep under your belt, you'll probably be able to take a deep breath, hear them out, let their emotions play their course uh, and then you're golden, right? And you can calmly put your side of things and it's all gonna be great. But if you are short on sleep or dehydrated or hungry, or needing to go to the toilet, or, or four, <laughs> then your ability to sit patiently while you jiggle a knee under your full bladder uh, is going to be very limited. And as a result, that conflict is likely to go vastly less well. More likely, you're going to end up shouting at each other or having the thing dissolve into unpleasantness. Uh, and so that is an important part, right? If you're going to have monstrosity, you got to take good enough care of yourself to manage that right so uh, i say as a as a nice metaphor the movie's uh, how to train your dragon oh. i think the children's film series yeah. right that's like it's much more metaphorical than a film like inside out which is great uh as well uh but a movie like how to train your dragon i think really speaks to well but if we have these like monsters we could connect to or not we can either take care of them get to know them understand you know where to give them a nice scratch what foods they like what foods they don't how to take care of ourselves in all the simple ways or they can, like, burn down your village and take all your sheep, which I think is the kind of I metaphor. I
1: never looked at that as a metaphor. <laughs> this has blown my mind. My well, <laughs> next weekend <laughs> we'll be watching With Fresh Eyes, How to Train Your Dragon. Amazing. I mean, I really... I think just, just
0: the first one is probably <laughs> going to place that metaphor really strongly. After that one, like, <laughs> spoiler alert, uh, like, once they start killing off various family members, <laughs> like, also be careful with showing kids that <laughs> stuff. Right, but the first one, I mean, to my mind, I mean, I'm a psychologist, of course. I would say this uh, to my mind. That first one is a really clear-cut emotional metaphor. So, yeah, you know, play play with that uh, as you will. And then I think it's about acceptance, right? Like, so by the time you've taken care of yourself, the rest is then acceptance, which is harder than it sounds. Yeah, okay. It's not approval, right? You don't need to like having murderous thoughts or rapey thoughts or arson-flavored thoughts, right? Because all the bad thoughts can play out inside a person's head. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's about accepting that they will, by being curious in exactly the way, Lisa, you called out, you know, however many minutes ago it was, uh, being curious about what that potentially means mm-hmm. and whether there's like a deeper wisdom that you're like tapping on your, your emotional head is tapping on your rational head and saying, hey, you should pay some attention here. There's things you could learn uh, or this this might mean something for you as far as this decision or relationship or whatever is concerned, right? Mm-hmm. So be curious in a gentle way and then let it play out. And let yourself not murder anyone on any given day.
1: Yeah. So probably good disclaimer. If, you, if those thoughts are escalating, do please seek help.
0: Please seek help. That's so a I really find, good start. Yeah,
1: Beyond Blue, any of those.
0: Yep, as a really good starting if need point. Be. Whatever,
1: but um, just <laughs> as appropriate to uh, the extremity of uh, those thoughts. But obviously, yeah, if they're just a mild... In inner voice version,
0: yeah, where well, you're slightly concerned that this is a part of your personality, yeah. yeah, by all means, like a few deep breaths, have a glass of water, make sure you get a good night's sleep, exercise maybe, yeah, uh, yeah, all of that stuff, right? Essentially, you can treat it as an anxiety problem, even if it is popping up as anger, right? Like for the self-helpy kind of flavor of things, sure. And I think the the kind of hard, I mean, almost philosophical edge uh, is to let yourself have temptation. Because when you let yourself have temptation, you can manage it. When you don't let yourself have temptation, I think it will catch you by surprise. And I think it will catch you by surprise. Just
1: I mean. to be clear, you're not saying let yourself have temptation, go out and set fire to something. <laughs> you're saying, what do you mean by that? I mean- because I think we have different versions
0: Excellent. Of that. I mean, let it play out in your head. Okay. So that you can then manage the behavior.
1: Okay. So yeah. don't
0: light fires. Because
1: that's behavior.
0: <laughs> True. Yeah, right. Yeah. Whereas the emotional experience – I think the emotional experience can be influenced with the self-care, but I don't think it can be controlled. Yeah. Whereas I, and I think if we take good enough care of ourselves, then ma- like managing – so, choosing not to follow through on an emotional impulse – with behavior, yeah, yeah, that's the part we're going to bring some focus to. And the easier we can do this, the more sustainably we can do it. So, again, relaxing into it ultimately. But, yeah, if you're worried about it, find a me-shaped person, right start with your GP, call Lifeline if you're worried about it. Um, And I think always good to kind of look at your history. So if you have a long history of monstrous impulses and you're yet to follow through on one, that's a really great start. Does it mean it's impossible? No, it doesn't. But does it mean that it's unlikely? Yeah. Yeah. And so, go get support. Figure out why. Right? What What is the deeper meaning here? Go and have a series of entertaining conversations about cavemen and the way they rolled, yeah. uh, and how every culture in the history of the world forever has done terrible things to one group of people or another, or one individual or another. Right? We see this everywhere, forever, because. Again, this is my personal theory. I think people are all the same as far as broad societies are concerned. Crazy and monsters. I know. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, I really do. I think you can get kind of cultural nuance around this stuff in the same way you can get individual nuance around this stuff. But I think we see exactly the same level of temptation. And to kind of sound an optimistic note, if everybody's having some version of this thought, I mean, I'm going to argue every day, right? At least once a day, I think that every member of every society has a truly monstrous thought. If they don't care, they're not going to remember it because, again, there's no anxiety attached to it. But if that's the case, isn't it fascinating that so few people are actually the victims of monstrosity on any given day, right? So Australia's like 25 million people at this stage of the game. I think it's less than 200 people a year die of murder, or it's only a couple of hundred people a year die of murder. Now, all of those are tragedies, and we should continue to work on those to be really important. Yeah, this isn't me, like patting all of Australia on the back like, yay, murder. No, again, not a fan. Uh, But the point is, it's not 25 million murders a day. Well, I guess it would have to be 12 12 and a half. half. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. But it's not. It's a tiny, tiny fraction of that. Mm. And I think importantly that when we look at the monstrosities that do occur, that we can come to that, with a greater openness and curiosity than we have in the past, right? I think the temptation is to look at monstrosities that occur within society and say, that's just a bad person. That's a bad apple. It could never be me. Whereas I think if we really drill into that person's experience, right, we get to understand the perpetrators, then we see actually a lot of this stuff makes a great deal of sense. A great deal of sense.
1: And there may be some bad barrels around with the way that we treat people in our society and the experiences that some people have. Exactly. Interesting. Didn't know we'd go there. That's deep. Yeah. Okay. I like it. So you touched on this before about the feedback loop, but if people don't manage um, and sort of pretend this doesn't exist... <laughs> what what are the consequences of that? Is that just you know?
0: I mean, it can go catastrophically badly yeah, in the right. worst case scenario. In the same way that you know, maybe you're not channeling your monstrosity into hurting others. Maybe you're channeling it into hurting yourself. Maybe you're doing drugs Ooh. or gambling or I don't know. I didn't know we
1: were going to go here either. Yeah, good gaming point.
0: excessively. Right, all of these yeah, things okay. that people can do to. Like, ineffectually manage. Happens. Yeah. Yeah.
1: They're
0: kind of the hard feels, right? Because, oh. again, I don't think anyone does any of that stuff to a problematic degree unless it's some form of self-medication.
1: Yeah, right. Yep, yeah. I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. Booze, food, gaming, gambling.
0: Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Money, sex, violence in all yeah, its forms. Okay. Yeah, All the stuff which has, like release and excitement attached to it, right? And it does, because if it didn't have, like, some form of pleasantness attached to it, that's not the things we do. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think we find dysfunctional coping strategies. And sometimes it's less dysfunctional than the alternative, which means it's okay, right? Like, it's a good kind of, like midway point on the way to being able to have whatever your experience is without any of the kind of side effects attached Mm -hmm. to it. Um, Yeah. But I think that's the kind of punchline. If you don't manage, then, I mean, not managing is a a spectrum of experience, right? Like it pops up in lots and lots of different ways. Um, Yeah. So I think that some folks will out of essentially fear of their own monstrosity do self-damaging things or things of limited damage to other people, which sucks for them and for others um and maybe that's the least worst option available on any given day as a starting point yeah but understanding that there is a pathway forward there's always a pathway forward again find the me-shaped people right go and talk to your gp in the first instance maybe you're getting referral through to a me-shaped person or a psychiatrist or a group therapist, or maybe you need a physio, right? Like sometimes it's stuff like that. There's a million different ways to get this work done. And sometimes it's about dealing with an underlying pain issue, which means that your sleep improves or you've got greater capacity to work. And there's a whole virtuous cycle that spins out of that, which means the monstrous stuff in your head starts to really retreat as well. Um, Yeah. So lots and lots of ways of getting it done.
1: Yeah. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Right. eh? That's a a good point. Um, So... Do we just need to be indifferent? what do you what do you think? What's our secret
0: power in this? <laughs> so I love I mean I yeah you know, do time, I just not
1: need to care I have,
0: what do you think? Well so I think if there's going to be a power of indifference of which I'm a big fan, it's about our indifference I mean in a sense to ourselves, I think I wouldn't start with indifference as far as our own process is concerned. I think the value of indifference is getting to the point where if you've practiced not deliberately right but if you've practiced, um, feeling anxious about your thoughts of murder. Like that's been our example throughout. So let's, let's keep talking about that. So if you... <laughs> sure. Yeah. If you figured out that that is your emotional mind's way of saying there's drama in this relationship, right? Like when there's drama in this relationship, your emotional mind sends you a coded message, uh, which comes wrapped up in the form of a murderous impulse, mm-hmm. um, then great. Right, you know what you're doing. When it pops up, you're like, "Oh, okay, interesting. I did not expect to have uh, like a murderous impulse towards Aunt Wilmina, Um, Auntie Bob. Do you have an Aunt Wilmina as well?" (laughs) No, she's fine. You're good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So if it's that, then great. Like, oh, okay, interesting. I didn't think that there was anything there, but that's fine. I'll like get a bit curious about that and see where my potential drama with Auntie Bob uh, is. Um, and so there's that part of it. But then if you've been practicing doing murderous impulses for so long, they're going to keep happening, mm-hmm. right? Because when we train to do something again and again, it keeps happening. It carries its own momentum. Weirdly enough, choosing not to care, once you're ready to do that, right, once you've taken what wisdom you need to, if you choose not to care, you're indifferent, that is, firstly, that's the opposite of anxiety.
1: So mm-hmm. it sucks the
0: anxiety out of it, Yeah, which means that when it happens, one, you don't care as much. And two, because you don't care, it's going to happen less often.
1: And you're not creating that feedback loop. Is that where we're going? Exactly.
0: Yeah. Which, I mean, that sounds like a virtuous cycle, except, of course, in the context where you don't care, it's not really virtuous because there's no desired goal because you don't care. Mm. Yeah, it's a low-energy way, getting it done. But I tell you where I really love the power of indifference is in our relationships with others.
1: Mm -hmm. And
0: so it's when other people are failing to manage their monsters, right? Haven't trained their Uh, dragon. Yes,
1: okay. Yes.
0: A thing that a lot of folks, and I mean school bullying is a really good example of it, but it plays out in lots of parts of adult life as well. Uh, A thing a lot of bullies are looking for is your reaction as the potential victim because ignoring doesn't work. Right. Ignoring a person who's being a colossal jerk is not an effective strategy most of the time, because to ignore something takes a huge amount of energy and to be a jerk to someone does not take a huge amount of energy. In fact, it's often kind of like cathartic. It's, it's energizing or soothing for the person who's being a jerk. Uh, and so you're going to lose out. Purely on the basis of endurance, apart Mm. from anything else, if you're going down an ignoring pathway. never thought about that either. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, And, uh, well, that's because we were all told forever by my tribe, apart from anything else, like, Mm. just ignore it. It'll go away. They only want your reaction, so just ignore them until they don't. But that neglects the endurance factor, which is that you're going to run out of puff before they do. Mm. Um, However... Reaching a space where you're holding such high relationship boundaries, call that to the previous episode, uh, such high relationship boundaries that irrespective of what that person does, you really don't care. It's not that you wish them ill. You also don't really wish them well. You don't wish them anything because you don't care. You have the same relationship with them, emotionally speaking, as you do with your local post office workers. Right. You probably like have vaguely like well wishing feelings towards your postal workers because they do useful things for you. Um, but even if it's less than that, right? With the potential bullies in your life, you are like, oh, I just, there's like an absence of feeling inside me towards you. So if someone's coming to you with their monstrosity, like, you're a whatever. That's my like bully voice. Um, you know, they're going after you for your insecurities, which again is what bullies do. Um, you're like, oh, cool. I mean, look. You do you, dude, because there's a gulf between us and I can't emphasize this enough. I genuinely don't give a shit about what you do or say in any given moment. Now, that sounds lovely. And for anyone who's in that situation of being bullied, whether it's at school or in their work or within their home, it can also feel entirely unfeasible. But I'll point out that for any given person, they already have that relationship with someone. So, for instance, uh, I don't know if they're still around. I haven't been following the news closely enough. But Al-Qaeda were great as a thought experiment for this for me. Uh, Because Al-Qaeda very disapprove. Well, you're a good example, Lisa. They disapprove of you Mm. as a specific person because you are like professional and educated and empowered and great in so many ways that we adore about you. Uh, As a woman. As a woman, Mm. yes. Uh, And they uh, hold a system of belief that is very inconsistent with the way you live your life. This is true. Yes. Now, I've never heard you uh, discuss with any emotional passion whatsoever Al-Qaeda's disapproval of your specific lifestyle. It's a good point. Because you don't <laughs> give a shit. I do not. You have the power of indifference. I do. Which oh, means as a thought experiment, this is accessible to you as a thing. Yeah. And so the challenge then is transitioning. It's the transition from mm. having a problematic relationship with somebody else who can't manage their monster and transitioning more towards the relationship you have with Al-Qaeda.
1: So, with Auntie Wilhelmina as she frustrates me at Christmas time, <laughs> and I want to run over her with her truck, should I just say to her, "It's okay," because I just consider you the same as I? Hell, <laughs> Gaida is that gonna go down well at my Christmas? Well, or, I mean, the words reckon?
0: the words are great, <laughs> except we both know that you're being like really passive aggressive, <laughs> and that, of course, ironically means that you care a lot. <laughs> Damn you, psychologist, I man. I hate that this came to bite me on the
1: arse. I thought I was winning that. It's
0: the emotions that matter, right? <laughs> oh, it's no. the feelings are the I'm hard so bit. The rational part's the easy bit, right? <gasps> it's the feelings that are hard. So fine. <laughs> fine. <laughs> You're fine. <laughs> oh, this is so much fun. Um, yeah, so I think your first chat is probably with you. <laughs>
1: I'm kind of just going to make such a mention. It's just going to have highlights from here for at least the next month until I forget about
0: it and go back to being indifferent. So it's it's about working with yourself in the first instance. I think the question is why am I reacting so hard? Right. Yeah. It's like, why am I so invested in this person who can't manage their monster? Understanding that that's a spectrum of experience, right? It's not that your only choices are my deeply toxic bond with Aunt Wilhelmina. (laughs) Or my deeply dispassionate relationship with Al-Qaeda. <laughs> uh, it's There's all the space in between, mm-hmm. right? There's giving 90% of a shit about somebody. There's giving 25% of mm-hmm. a shit about somebody. Uh, and so finding the balance of your own indifference where you hold that person as closely as you want to but no closer than you can. Ooh. Ooh I know. That's good. Yeah, yeah. I've been working that line eh? for about a decade now. <laughs> that's amazing. Um yeah, understanding and I think we talked about this in the the boundaries episode. Um that there's a small number of people in your life where you can choose to be in pain for them. Right? Mm-hmm. So I think like of people's kids in mm-hmm. particular because you know to call out to the parenting episode. Parenting is hard. It's really yeah. really difficult under the best of circumstances uh and in order to like support particularly like little kids you got to care, right? You got to care. You got to be attached. You got to pay attention because that's really important for them and their development and the grown-ups that they turn into. Um, and so you're going to be in pain as a part of that a fair quantity of the time. You get to feel the amazing love as well. It's not all bad news, to be really clear for the, you know, the parents or the prospective parents out there. Um, but you got to leave enough space for that. And so if you're trying to overcommit to the pain that you're taking on in life, yeah, that doesn't work. I mean, that kind of comes back, like loops us all the way back around to the interesting moral questions. Like, well, but I want to be able to do this because I think it's the right thing. And I'm never telling people like, well, you have to do the wrong thing. But sometimes I am telling people, well, you don't have enough budget to do all the right things that you want to do.
1: Oh, emotional budget. Yeah. Ooh.
0: So now you get to make a choice because it's your call client, right? I'm not a philosopher. I'm not a priest. Um, you get to make your own decisions here. What are you going to do less of? Because you're chronically exhausted, which ironically means you're doing a terrible job of managing other people's monsters and your own. Mm. And so now we're in vicious cycle land. If you cared less, you'd get more done. Mm. Mm.
1: What was your little catchphrase before again? Which one? The one that you just did that I really liked. Fucked
0: up, insecure, neurotic, and extremely stressed. (laughs) I like that
1: one, though. Uh, You can choose how much... To give to someone, we're gonna to have to go back
0: and look it up. Oh, okay. It's the I think what you're you're speaking yeah. about is that you can care about Yes. You can choose to be in pain for others. But if you're in more pain than you can manage, then you're going to need to ch- nah, no, I'm have not to go any, back and look it up. That's all right. I will go back. I wanna back repeat and, it. I
1: want yeah, right.
0: it. I will it was a good one. I will play it repetitively at the very end of the okay, sting great. of this episode. Great. It'll it'll play like three times great. or something. <laughs> yeah. No, that's excessive. It'll Leachers play once. It will play once. <laughs> <laughs> so the last, whatever, 30 seconds of this episode will be that statement again. Great. All right. Can Thank do. you. Like it was good. Note for editing. Sold.
1: Great. <laughs> All right, Tom. So wrapping up, what are your top three messages on um, the monsters within us?
0: I'd say firstly, accept that there's a monster inside you. I'd mm-hmm. say manage your feelings as a second point, and as a third point, be good. Uh, and your therapist doesn't care about that, but you should because they're your emotions. Ooh, yeah, deep, <laughs> deep. Whatever your morality is, yeah, be good. Understand, you're going to fail occasionally because old people do, right? And again, any like mature religion or philosophy will speak about failure and the pathway back to righteousness, whatever the hell that means for you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Righteousness, amazing. Okay, um, amazing. So we're going to put the links to these resources in the podcast notes Uh, for anyone who wants to delve deeper. So you Mm -hmm. mentioned a few things, there'll be links on those. Um, And next week, our topic is how to be not unhappy. (laughs) So, uh, Tom, I believe we're not giving out the secret magic potion recipe for happiness. No, there's
0: no surprises there.
1: But, uh, we will get into, uh, how to ensure you're working towards not being unhappy. Is yeah.
0: That- and from there, you can go and be happy after that. That's good. Yeah. But it's very hard to get happy if you're already unhappy. Yeah, sometimes we need to fight our way to the middle space, which is like what I basically do for a living. And then from there, folks tend to very spontaneously kind of do the rest themselves, which is great. It's lovely to go watch them run wild and free and have adventures and enjoy themselves.
1: Amazing. Well, you and I are going to go and have some wild adventures and be running free. Uh, But thank you to everyone uh, for joining us on All People Are Crazy.
0: (laughs) We'll catch you next week. Thanks, Lisa. Bye for now. All People Are Crazy is a production of The Therapy People. We would appreciate your five-star review on the podcast platform of your choice. Why not visit us at allpeoplearecrazy.com.au or on Instagram or Facebook. If you're a psychologist interested in setting up private practice, why not visit therapypeople.com.au to see whether we can be of assistance. Well, you don't have enough budget to do all the right things that you want to do. Oh,
1: emotional budget. Yeah. Ooh.
0: So now you get to make a choice because it's your call, client, right? I'm not a philosopher. I'm not a priest. Um, you get to make your own decisions here. What are you going to do less of? Because mm-hmm. you're chronically exhausted, which ironically means you're doing a terrible job of managing other people's monsters and your own. Mm. And so now we're in vicious cycle land. If you cared less, you'd get more done. Mm-hmm. Mm.